Welcome everybody to uh, Legal Tech Week for February 17th, 2023. We've got a full house of panelists today and so many that we had to cram two into one room. Uh, but uh, this is Bob Ambrosi. I will be moderating today. I write the blog Law Sites and have the podcast Law Next. And uh, we have a, a guest panelist today, occasional. He's an occasional panelist. He's with us sometimes, but let me introduce him first. Steve, you want to... Say hello and introduce yourself. Hey, uh, Steve Lerner, senior reporter from Law360. Thank you so much, Bob, for having me on the on the roundtable today. Hope everyone's doing well. Yeah, and uh, and taking time off from her personal day off is uh, Nikki Black. Uh, I am Nikki Black. I am the uh, senior director of SME and external education at my case slash law face slash Affinipay. Um, I write legal tech columns for Above the Law, ABA Journal, uh, and The Daily Record, among other outlets. And I also oversee and write the uh, My Case and Law Pay Legal Industry Survey that we publish annually and our three benchmark reports. And um, I'm super excited for the stuff we're talking about today. There's some really cool things going on in the R space. So I can't wait. There are. And uh, Victor. Hi, everyone. My name is Victor Lee. I am assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal covering business of law and technology. And uh, you know, I've noticed a lot of people just in this area seem to have the day off, um, seem to have today off and then a Monday, and then Monday as well. So it's like an extra long President's Day weekend, which is nice, but I don't really see why people like Millard Fillmore and like, you know, James Buchanan get like a merit, like a four day weekend, but that, that, that's just me. <laughs> Not to mention a couple of recent ones. Um, Steve Embry. Hi, everyone. I'm Steve Embry. I write the blog Tech Ball Crossroads about legal technology and innovation. I'm also the uh, chair of the ABA Law Practice Division and want to make sure and invite everyone to our ABA Tech Show, which is going to kick off in about 10 days, week after next. So I hope to see a lot of you there. Can't wait for that. And a, a twofer for you from uh, somewhere outside of... Uh... The greater New York area, I guess. Uh, I don't know where you are actually, but uh, you yeah. too. <laughs> Statler and Waldorf. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, yeah. So I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law and the podcast Thinking Like a Lawyer and uh, NYU class of 2001. So uh, I'm. Um, and then I, NYU class of 2002, <laughs> Stephanie Wilkins, <laughs> uh, editor in chief of Legal Tech News at ALM. And I am squatting at Joe's house for a couple of days over the long weekend with some other friends. So here we are. Sounds like fun. Next time, invite all of us, Joe. We'll have a big uh, legal legal tech week broadcast party or something. Our my our like a pair of classes of NYU law are uh, weirdly overrepresented in the legal journalism world and legal days. tech too. And it's very tech strange. now, yeah, in yeah. particular. Yeah. That's well. There's been a few classes like that out of NYU Law, but that's that's good. Uh, well, uh, since uh, since we have a guest, I, I'd like to let our guest go first, uh, and uh, he's going to talk about something that may sound a little bit familiar if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, because we've already talked about it uh, in various. Uh, as this story has continued to evolve, we've talked about uh, various aspects of it, and now there is more news and kind of the continuing saga of of do not pay. So. Steve, you want to tell us what's going on? Yeah, so uh, this week you had a paralegal, uh, Catherine Tustin, who filed a petition for pre-suit discovery. Um, that happened officially Monday, and it was a pretty pretty interesting petition. Um, I mean, so in the petition, Catherine kind of goes over what she saw with the platform, just to give everybody kind of a brief recap um she signed up for do not pay in january tested out a few of the tools claimed that some of them did not work as she anticipated them to um told the world about it on social media got in contact with the founder of do not pay and then it goes on from there down a very dark rabbit hole last week the founder of do not pay went on bob's podcast for some reason to talk about um <laughs> you know, uh, his side of the story. And so this week you had the petition that came out. Um, just reading through the petition, 
it was very, very well worded, um, very, very strong, calling uh, calling do not pay a $36 fraud. Um, Theranos was, was mentioned nine times in the petition, which uh, that that's not an accident. I think that was intentional. Um, and then really the petition goes into a great deal of detail about what Catherine, uh, I mean, uh, what, yeah, what um, she experienced um, when she went through Do Not Pay's platform, um, claiming that it, the platform spit, spit out an amateurish designed and poorly re reasoned document wizard created demand letter. Um, she performs forensic investigations for work. So she was able to look at the one document that she got out, two of the documents she didn't get right away as, as she uh, supposedly said. Um, she did a forensic investigation of that one document and could spot errors that an AI would have picked up on. And then she took a look at the structure of the data and uh, of the Microsoft Word file and found that it was basically very similar to a Google Docs plugin and wasn't really AI based based on what she could see. Um, and so that was kind of the heart of the petition. And then on top of that, I reached out to Do Not Pay and wanted to get their side of things. And I, of course, they said some comments that probably people saw online um, real quick. Do Not Pay um, said that instead of finding a real consumer that was harmed to sue us, the lawyers at uh, the firm of Catherine Tucson sent her to sign up and create a bunch of fake Do Not Pay cases. Um, and then this this quote really got me. Of, of all the people to be replaced by AI, paralegals will be the first today to do not pay robot lawyers being attacked in court by an angry paralegal to try and stop our service from operating. It's like the dinosaurs suing to stop the ice age. Um, and then from there, do not pay also said that it's, uh, it's a business of its size is becoming a blackmailing target of money extracting lawyers, um, especially a business trying to replace us. But Nobody close to the company is concerned. So um, now it is going to be in some type of legal matter. Um, so do not pay is in a lot more trouble this week than last week, it seems. Yeah. It just keeps Joe, getting Joe deeper. Could, Joe could hear all the things I was muttering under my breath while we were <laughs> muted. Um, I, it was Catherine Tucson week, because I also had a long conversation with her yesterday for almost an hour and a half. I'm I, typing up a, read up a Q, uh, Q and A that I'm, Gonna be published like right after this, but yeah, I mean, she's particularly out of the box addressed the notion that her employer put her on this. She was like, "No, I do this for a living. Like they're supporting me, but they had nothing to do with this." And she's smart. People are like, I feel like people are using paralegal as some pejorative term, which a, it's not, and b, she's been a paralegal for a little bit. She used to do tech support for Microsoft. She is a forensic investigator. She knows how to take apart a file in a way that I don't. And so, I mean, she's not just on some crazy person crusade here to, yeah. And she, yeah, she filed a claim for $36. It's not like she's even trying to, I mean, and this'll be much bigger, obviously, if it takes off, but she's, she's actually very fascinating to talk to. Yeah. My one quibble would just be, uh, you know, when you say errors that an AI was gonna pick up on, uh, I think we've talked a lot in the last few weeks that AI seems to be making errors all over the place. So I don't know what exactly it was supposed to figure out. If it can't figure out Clarence Thomas, I don't know if it's going to get that. But otherwise, yeah, it seems like it seems like uh, Do Not Pay has uh, decided to double down when uh, walking away with Grace would have probably been a smarter move. I had somebody say to me, well, so what if they're claiming to be AI and they're not? Isn't that what every legal company does? Couldn't argue with that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, but isn't that part of the problem that, yeah, plenty are, but some aren't. So nobody's going to actually trust the things that are real and doing good work. Yeah. And I, obviously I'm being facetious. I know I, you are. I, yeah, I know. Bob, you and I are very much aligned. I was like, <laughs> But it's it's also interesting. I mean, this is not even a this is the petition they filed is uh, I guess something under CPLR in New York that it's a sort of a pre-suit actually to to preserve uh, evidence that could potentially be used in a in a in a in a they're talking about a potential consumer class action here. 
uh, and uh, and to try and get access to some of that evidence to see if, in fact, it substantiates a claim. So this isn't even a, a full lawsuit at this point. It's really kind of an exploratory move, I guess, on her part. I, I, somebody who knows uh, New York civil practice better than I might might better understand the, the, the situation there. But uh, I, it's an interesting move on their part. Yeah, I mean, I think she wants to get the facts right before bringing the actual suit. I think that's kind of the idea here. Yeah. Well, and she wants, I mean, she has whatever evidence, but she's afraid it's going to disappear and not for invalid reasons. So I think that was the whole move was to preserve this evidence in advance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I think it was a smart move to do this uh, before filing an actual suit. Oh, she knows what she's doing. She is, she is. A now, wait, now, in this petition, did she? File it via do not pay. I don't know if she, <laughs> it, will it be right if it's not? Do she that? has invited do not pay to defend themselves question. using oh. their AI robot. That's for sure. <laughs> or, or she used chat GPT to draft the, uh, no, um, no, yeah. um, I mean, well, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I think, you know, based on, based on, you know, just what we know about like e-discovery, you know, practices and whatnot. I mean, they should, considering all the, all the, all the, I mean, considering all the all the bad press and all the financial problems that they've been that they've been um, encountering over the last like over the last couple of weeks, they should probably be under the assumption that they're probably going to get sued at some point. So, which anytime anytime litigation is is, is reasonably anticipated, you have like a duty to to, um, to preserve your 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 evidence and your your data anyway. So, I mean, you know, I mean, if if they were to like start, you know, not shredding documents, but like whatever the digital equivalent of the digital equivalent of that is, you know, maybe throwing a laptop and in, in, into a, into a, you know, um, into, into a wood chipper or something, then, you know, then, then, then they would, they would have a whole lot, a whole lot of other problems that they would, that would go beyond just whatever PR problems that they're coming up with. But it's just, yeah, I was just kind of going back to Bob's podcast about it. I didn't listen to the whole thing, but I, I heard parts of it. Um, it, it, it did kind of seem. Well, you've got all weekend to go back and listen to the rest yeah. of it. So. <laughs> but like, but just like once he was like, Oh, it's a big nothing burger. I was like, Oh, <laughs> That, that, I mean, that's the it's thing is he a... seems to be, he just has this tone deafness about him. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, you know, w- was interested in hearing what he had to say in the, in the, in the podcast and how he would respond to some of what's been said. And, and he just, from the first time he started talking, basically, like with, as you say, with the, with the nothing burger comment, he just went on to kind of denigrate the people who are being critical of him and not take seriously the, the issues that they were raising. I mean, he, he sort of gave in, oh, yeah, they raised some some UI issues we considered or something like that. But I mean, he's just dismissed all of this in a, in a way that just shows such a high degree of, of, of tone deafness. I just don't understand it. Well, and on the lawsuit point, uh, you I was on your podcast, Bob. Didn't he say something along the lines of lawyers have been trying to sue us or bring us to court for years, and then they decided it just wasn't worth it? He said, "I asked him if he had ever been sued before, and he said no. He has uh, been. He, Steve's been article, I think you mentioned that yeah. they had been. They were sued in twenty. Well, they it was dismissed in twenty twenty one, but it was a completely different claim. It was about telephone records or something. It had nothing to do with the actual technology that they have. Yeah." yeah. I could be thinking of something else, but I thought I, I thought he said something to the effect of people are threatening or trying to find a way to sue us all the time, but ultimately they find it's not worth bringing the claim. No, I thought he kind of said the opposite. What is, I thought oh. what he said was more that uh, just to say that she's a, you know, she's a, a, a lone actor here in terms of uh, bringing a, a lawsuit against him and in, in all their years of operation, nobody has has taken any kind of an action against him like that before. He tried he tried to portray her as kind of a renegade or something rather than rather than having some legitimate claim. But this gets to one of the things that I, one of my articles about this is that I part of the reason no one's gone after them is because they stayed pun very much intended in their lane. When they were doing traffic court, there's not a lot of people who had a lot on the line uh, to go after them. Uh, when they get out of that business, then, you know, then they might have some issues. And I think that's what we just saw. Right. Well, and yeah. I, going back to the litigation point, I think it was really smart of her to file that, to uh, preserve the evidence, because once you get wind that there, as long as you have procedures in place, to destroy evidence every 90 days or whatever the case may be, you know, people have to manage their digital data and smart companies manage their digital data by 
deleting what doesn't need to be on their servers anymore and having a process in place to do that. Um, and then once there is, um, like Victor said, uh, you know, uh, reason to believe the litigation may be filed, then you have to start preserving it. But <clears throat> you can't rely on the person to a agree with your definition of reasonableness, reasonableness in terms of is a lawsuit imminent, imminent. And then also just to err on the side of caution, you always have to assume that everything's not going to go your way when you're litigating and to do everything you possibly can to protect your um, client's rights, or in her case, I guess her rights, since she's litigating on her own behalf um, from the get-go. And so what she did was super smart and um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. And the other thing I did want to mention was his response sort of re reminds me of the response of a lot of other people over the years that we've talked about on this podcast and even predating this. Uh, when certain types of companies that kind of do these cutting edge things, when something blows up in their face, it always seems to me like the CEOs have a certain personality type where they always kind of res respond in this way <laughs> rather than doing the more, more diplomatic uh, route of response. So I'm sort of not surprised by his response just based on uh, history and other CEOs in similar positions. But often they're at least slightly more reined in than going on talking to Bob for an hour in that same tone. <laughs> point. Fair enough. Yeah. Like, no, I totally agree with you. But to the point that was just in the comments about how can a tool be an unauthorized practice of law, I talked to her a bit about that too. And it's just like the things that went into, so specifically for the traffic court tool case, they had said, we found a case that there was no evidence evidence necessary under this jurisdiction, they would find that no evidence needed to be presented. So we would just be able to do this. And so she was like, who did that analysis? And all of that thing, the, the robot didn't, somebody practiced that legal judgment and decided to pick a case and tell you how this case could go forward. Then with chat GPT in your ear to only make a sentence that they were pretty sure the judge could not fight with. So at the and there's other things that go further. I know there's another point she talked about Bob with, but like, it's not just that they turn this whole case over from analysis from day one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I think you could, you could, I mean, as, if there's zero evidence coming from that subpoena, whatever that they issue, however they framed it, like if that came back with there is nothing, I mean, that's something that they could have, that the machine could have said this is a good case. But they specifically said in this jurisdiction, this is a good argument for this kind of case, right. for this kind of argument. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, 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 I definitely think that, and I think he admitted this in that podcast, that of the cases they were looking at, there was a human decision that this is the one we will allow the tool to be used in. But I don't know as though that's a practice of law decision. I'm not know. sure. Yeah, they they, they I mean, cherry pick they cherry pick the one that they knew would would that they hoped would be dismissed on a procedural ground so that they would not have to issue raise factual arguments or yeah. other kinds of legal. But like, is is the decision of picking a case like it, when the ACLU or NAACP picks a test case is the choice of the test case a practice of law or is just the stuff you do in that case? I don't know. I'm not sure that that's a problem, but but whether or not it's a problem, it's exactly what yeah was just no, in the yeah. comment. It's the we did this and we did this. Like who is the we is not the robot. The we is do not pay. So whoever is exercising this judgment, whether or not it ultimately is UPL, our people. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. It's so it's not a question of the robot doing. Well, They're people for now, but then we're getting to the point where the AIs are creating software and tools. And so I, then I wonder what happens the more removed we get from a person being the, granted a person certainly created um, this tool that then spits out this um, these recommendations, but there's plenty of evidence of AIs creating AIs, you know, or, or having input on programming. Like for example, even with chat GPT, right? Like you ask, you're a human, but you ask chat GPT to code, which a lot of people have been doing. And then you use that to code something. So it's yeah. really the, the AI coded the uh, tool. <laughs> so it's interesting to see those different layers and how it, this is going to evolve um, when that uh, with that happening. Oh, yeah, we're just in AI inception. <laughs> we totally are. <laughs> I've been saying we're living in simulation for like a really long time. No one is buying this, but that might be a good segue. I'm, I'm reminded. <clears throat> I'm reminded of the judge, and I can't remember. I think it was maybe Massachusetts or New York that ruled that a <clears throat> only. Only a person can practice law, and a platform or, or AI program cannot practice law. So 
Therefore, if a AI program does something, it cannot be the practice of law. Only a human can practice law, whether authorized or not. Now, I don't know if I would necessarily agree with that, but it is kind of an interesting approach. Yeah, and I think and I think Mark Lawrence just made this point. And I think actually Browder made this point in the podcast that if you publish uh, legal documents or or sort of tips on how to present a case in in the form of a book, you can do that. That's not the practice of law. And he's saying, well, if you can do it in a book, why can't you do it online? I don't know. Well, for I'm, sure, unfortunately, the, I'm not an ethicist, but for sure, the definition of unauthorized practice of law is going to have to evolve to address tools. Currently, it doesn't say that, but even within that, there will be lines. It's just, yeah, yeah. we and have to work on Yes, but it's going to have to evolve, especially know, for access to justice, too. To, yeah. to commit an unauthorized practice of law, don't you have to have a client? Is it possible to, to commit an unauthorized practice of law without having a client? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I just and, wonder. Well, and <laughs> when you write point. those books, typically the audience is lawyers. Not always. Anyone else can. Anyone can buy a book and read it. Well, no Usually can get no treatises about how to file a case are directed at lawyers, whereas this is specifically directed at consumers. Um, so I think that that's uh, somewhat of a distinction. But um, I also think the point that Steve just rose uh, uh, brought up was super interesting as well. I don't know. Yeah. There are any issues? Someone go research yeah. it or ask ChatGPT to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, just just to move along, we got a lot of stuff to cover, but but maybe in a in a sort of uh, flip side of, of this story in some way uh, is is the uh, Allen and Overy news this week, I think, uh, uh, of of the fact that it has now deployed Harvey uh, uh, throughout the firm throughout its what, 3500 plus lawyers. Uh, Harvey is the AI uh, platform that uh, I, I've actually talked about it a couple of times on this show because I, I was actually given a, a preview of it that I'm still not allowed to write about. They still told me I can't write about it under an NDA, but um, it, it's it basically is using the the uh, the GPT model uh, to uh, in in a legal setting uh, to do everything from uh, you know create summaries, uh, help generate legal documents. Uh, uh, help review contracts, uh, a number of different uh, uh, functions. Um, and uh, it's, you know, as Alan Overy said, they are now the first uh, law firm to kind of deploy uh, the uh, GPT uh, model throughout the firm. Uh, I, I talked to the founders yesterday who said that's just the first, but uh, they've got a number of other projects that they're working on to deploy this in, in law firms, similar to what they've done with Allen and Overy. Uh, and I think what's what's really interesting about it is, is you know, they talked about the fact that this is uh, very specifically being uh, fine-tuned to the particular needs of each law firm that they're working with. I mean, they're kind of starting with the general GPT model that's been, you know, trained on the internet, uh, and then they're further training it based against uh, a, a database of, of publicly available legal materials, really. I, I think uh, they've worked with a couple of the legal publishers to get cases and other materials. But then they go in and train it basically a third time or, or further fine tune it against the law firm's own, uh, you know, historical work documents, templates, whatever else. Uh, so that uh, they said it's the model is so highly refined that, uh, you know, it's almost incapable of the kind of hallucinations that we're hearing about with chat GPT. And to be clear, this is not chat GPT. This is the GPT. Wait, model. wait, 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 wait. So I, I'm confused by this. So they want to get rid of this hallucination problem. So they named it after a hallucinated rabbit. <laughs> you know, I know I'm talking you know, about specific. You know, I think you might be the only other person who got that reference. I asked somebody about that. The only on this show is that I said it was a weird thing to choose to name it. Anyway. Yeah, I, see, I went with Harvey Dent. That was the first thing I thought of. I was like, oh, that's a weird thing to call. Call, yeah. call, 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 call. And he was like, why would you name it, why would you name it after Two-Face? Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, oh, Two-Face. Oh, yeah, no, that's a good one, too. Yeah, I didn't even, yeah. Yeah, I really struggled for a while. Like, which, what is the logic of this name? Anyway. Jimmy Stewart is turning in his grave. No, but I'm really curious to see how it plays out in the firm and what they use it for and how it works. Because, I mean, they are the first ones to publicly say they've, you know, incorporated this for the workforce and letting people use it. I'm just 
super curious because unlike him, I'm very interested in this and I really want to see how it plays out. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting. I mean, he said, I forget now the number of my story, something like a quarter of the firm is using it like every day or something. And over the course of a month, 80% of everybody in the firm has been using it, uh, which is just pretty remarkable, I think. That really oh, yeah. out to me for sure. Oh, Birdman. Bird <laughs> that stood out to me. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting was it kind of reminded me of um, when I met with, I think it was at IltaCon uh, when LexisNexis was talking, I know some of you met with them too, about how they had, um, with their API and how their API allowed different tools to use the law firm's database to provide, uh, to create um, access to information in a way going into like linking into like um, Lexis's databases, like the names of people or the names of cases, but also just helping people locate useful information from the law firm's databases, which I thought was really interesting. And someone in the chat had asked, you know, if they're not using client data, then what are they using? I mean, it could be forms, right? It could be um, research or internal memos, right? There's a ton of different data that um, you could ask ChatGPT to like locate and also interpret as it relates to this particular case somehow, maybe, right? And I thought that just the fact that so many people had used it so quickly within a law firm was super telling. Um, I, I subscribe to ChatGPT Plus and I use it all the time. I love it. It's it's a super useful tool and it's I use it instead of Google. I don't know if the rest of you are doing that, but I use it more than Google at this point. It's a really great tool. I, I mean, look, I, I, I have litigator brain, so I, I come at this a little bit differently. But from a transactional side, it, it seems like <laughs> this would be the greatest thing in the world because I remember my friends in transactional work when I was at the big firm were constantly saying that 90% of what they their job, not that they did as a hack, but like partners told them, your job is to dig through the iManage database and find the smartest versions that we've already done of X clause. If you have something trained to go through that database and find it for you already, I mean, that that's... I, I get how they're at like 80% of people using it or something oh, like yeah. that is all what I'm saying. Well, and right, I think people right. want, they want to use it. And I know, interestingly, someone internally at our company asked me if any law firms are putting restrictions on their employees using ChatGPT. So we asked around and the main answer was, we shouldn't have to, because that should be common sense to not do that. I'm like, eh, I don't know that that's true. <laughs> but so even if there were, I mean, I would hope there were some restrictions. So if people were restricted from using it, this is like, if this were given to me by my law firm, I would absolutely dive into it. Yeah. So, or as Warren Hagen mm -hmm. says, they're all writing great notes to their spouses now. I know, I, <laughs> I snickered. <laughs> there were a few red flags that I saw in the A&O story. I think it was uh, the Financial Times who brought this up. They're, they're not using the tool to cut down on billable hours. They're not going to use the tool to cut down on cost. They're not going to do it, cut down on staff. And they're telling their attorneys, if you use this tool, you have to go and double check all the facts afterwards. So it's not to cut down on cost. It's not to make things more efficient because this will probably make things worse. Um, is it a vanity tool? That's that's what I've been wondering is they haven't demonstrated the use of the tool in public yet. Um, so I, I just, there, there's some red flags to me. It's an interesting story, but there, those are just some concerns I saw. So, but your point is exactly <laughs> it's a PR, no. PR push. <laughs> your point is exactly what I latched on to that in this in the same press release, they were, you know, lauding the use of this tool and how it's going to be great and efficient, or whatever, but they were very clear to be like, do not expect a reduction in your billable hours. Sounds like the unauthorized practice a lot of me. I don't know. But you know that's exactly well, where I mean, Harvey's like founders are are maybe not being tone deaf because they keep saying, "Look, yeah. we do not see this as a replacement for lawyers or a substitute yeah. for lawyers." We we although they do talk about it as a time saving tool, so that uh, is you know maybe contrary to what the Financial Times story su suggested. But but they're making very clear that this is a this is a an adjunct to lawyers to help them do their work and that they need to review and and. Uh, uh, monitor and and use their brains, you know, and not just rely on the AI here. Well, and also like even so, so I, I suppose if you if you use the tool and don't meet your billable hour quota, then can the law firm sue to get your payback? <laughs> Joe, that's a question for you. <laughs> Good question. Um, all right. Well. Um, 
while we're, I guess maybe while we're on the topic of, of, of robots in court, um, we've got uh, not quite a robot in court, but what, Stephanie, a, a, a court using a robot? Or well, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. And I partly picked this because I know Nikki will be really excited to talk about it, too. <laughs> um, a court in Colombia, the country of Colombia, um, not like a Columbia law school mock trial. The yeah. court of the yeah. country of Columbia yeah. has held a court hearing in the metaverse, which you know we had we've asked around a lot of courts in the U.S. and they're like, oh, we're nowhere near that, we're nowhere whatever. But they've 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 done it, and it's fascinating. There is so, there is a YouTube video. It's entirely in Spanish, um, but it's yeah. I mean, they did it. They employed it right away. And I mean, that Columbia was the same country last week that had the. Um, a Colombian judge used ChatGPT to write a verdict, uh, uh, an opinion. Yeah. So they're they're embracing it. They're jumping in. I think it's. I think the idea of um, like video trials can be challenging. I, I think it's also challenging to read the body language of an avatar. So in that respect, I don't think you know the trial in the metaverse is super useful. But you know, it, it, if people are dispersed geographically and for some reason you want to bring in a complaining witness or something um, who's moved away or, I don't know, you know, some other type of witness, an expert witness, it's an interesting way to go about it. But I think I would probably, um, as a former litigator, prefer Zoom over the metaverse at this point, simply because you can see expressions, even though you can't see them quite as well as you could in a courtroom. And the body language is muffled. That's how I would describe it through Zoom. You just can't see it as well. Um, you can't you can't see the body language of avatars. Don't you know that James Cameron has done groundbreaking work and Bing <laughs> refuses to let you see it? I don't know if anyone saw that Bing. Yeah. I tried for the record. I tried to sell Joe on us doing a dramatic interpretation of Bing's unhinged conversations. Aren't they unbelievable? The professing love, saying they want to be human. They're going to take out about what year it crazy. is. I, I support Bing. Somebody asked like where Avatar was playing and it was like, don't bother. It doesn't exist. Just refuse to see this movie. And I was like, I think robots are here to protect us. Uh, Bing did try to talk Joe out of hanging out with Stephanie this weekend, saying you'd probably rather hang out with Bing. And to be clear, I was yep. going to play the role of the unhinged AI. I was not going to make him do that. <laughs> I liked one word insisted it was still 2022 and it got really mad at the user. It was like, <laughs> was no, it's 2023. Look at your phone. It said, look at your phone. He's like, I'm looking at my phone. It's 2023. Your phone must be broken. And it gave like all this advice on how to reboot the phone. And then it devolved into just saying, you are a bad user. I am a good Ben. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait. Did, is, on this. is Bing run by Josh Browder's uh, press team? <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! Did, uh, on the uh, court hearing in Columbia, does anybody know why they did it in the in the metaverse? Or was there uh, was it just for fun, or did was there some reason they thought that had to be done or needed to be done? Or my impression, and so it was like our our Latin America correspondent is the one that wrote this up, and you know she's fluent in Spanish and was able to speak to people more about it. Oh, your Latin American correspondent, it. like we all have Latin American correspondents, right? Well, legal I, tech news doesn't. Say, but like, <laughs> legal tech news doesn't, but mm. ALM does, and I've gotten them interested in technology about these kind of things. Um, well, but seriously, and so I mean, they had identified this thing happening, and I was like, yeah, absolutely, cover it. And I think it was the more the impression they were able to get between that and the decision being written by ChatGPT is that. They have just even more so than us, maybe like their justice system is crunched. It's like they just don't have the resources. They can't get enough people through. So I guess I don't know. I want to dig more into the details of the actual case that was heard. I'm assuming it was not a, you know, massive case with massive implications. But I think they're just really willing to experiment with this technology in a way that we're not. And even like there was a whole thing about how China, long before ChatGPT ever came out, we started having these conversations. Like at our Asia desk, again, to be that person, yeah. our Asia desk wrote a story about how AI has mandated lawyers to consider using AI long before we've been having these conversations. I think these other countries are just. Yeah, China's AI is, is this person guilty? Hit the button. Yes, that's it. That's the AI. <laughs> All right, well, where do we go from there to uh, online notaries? 
Smooth transition. Perfect transition. So I wrote my uh, most recent, um, uh, most recently published Daily Record article. I'll put it in the chat about um, New York's online notary law. And the reason it was on my radar was because I um, am on the board of trustees for my local bar association, and I belong to the solo small firm section. And they have a listserv. Yes, they've got a listserv still. So um, there was a lot of debate in the listserv about New York's online notary law that just got passed. And so I read about it and I wrote about it. And <clears throat> there are a couple of things I think are really interesting. I mean, first of all, essentially what it does is it takes the temporary measures that were put in place during the pandemic that allowed online notarization. It creates a um, structure in which they have been formalized into, you know, and promulgated into a law to allow um, online notaries in New York. <clears throat> um, and so that's the first thing that's interesting, right? This temporary, I don't think that had the pandemic not occurred, we would have online notaries in New York right now. It wouldn't have otherwise happened. But because of the social distancing requirements of the pandemic, there was the only way to get anything done. And so they put a temporary measure in place that's now become permanent. So it's just an example of all the different ways the bar has been moved because of the pandemic when it comes to technology adoption across our um, culture and also within the legal industry. So I thought that was really interesting. But then I thought the debate that was being had amongst the members of the listserv was also interesting. Um, there were a couple of things that they raised that I thought were um, notable. The first was that um, the complexity of the procedural requirements was problematic. Um, there were all sorts of hoops you have to jump through as a notary um, for it to, uh, for a notarization to, <clears throat> you know, um, be correct under the, done properly under the new law. And then the required length of the record keeping requirements, they have to A, have a written journal of the notarization that has to be kept for 10 years. And then all of the digital data, the um, video and all of those, whatever else, other type of data, the chats, I don't know, has to also be kept for 10 years. That's a long time to keep digital data. Um, so they were also, you know, <laughs> they thought that was problematic. And also the long-term impact on the availability of actual in-person notaries was discussed. And I think the reason a lot of the lawyers were getting riled up about it was, because um, lawyers in New York, at least, you are a notary by right. As long as you're a lawyer, you can become a notary, um, which I thought was kind of cool as a public defender. I was like, I'm a notary. And I like notarized things. I thought it was awesome. Um, <laughs> but you can become a notary just because you're a lawyer. And years ago, when I asked one of my colleagues, I'm like, What's, why is that? He's like, I don't know. We're the ones that make the laws. So that's why we get to do it without having to take the test. But anyway, <laughs> um, I thought it was super interesting that uh, uh, it was the lawyers getting upset because they are notaries. and um, but they also um, rely on their secretaries or other people in their office to do this. Then if online notarization becomes commonplace and the clients start demanding that, and then you have to do online notarizations, but you don't want to jump through all those hoops, it's going to make less people, I think, want to actually be notaries. And I think that's a legitimate concern because then you're going to have to start paying for the service online if you don't have notaries in your office or if you're no longer a notary because of because of those complexities, um, you know, I guess that's why they were upset because you can still be a notary yourself and notarize documents, but you can't notarize ones that you're signing. <clears throat> but in any event, I thought it was just interesting that uh, for any number of reasons, the, um, both the complexity uh, is sort of an indication that lawyers are willing, uh, we're willing to move into the 21st century, but uh, we still are going to make it difficult for anyone to do this. But I thought it was interesting just to see that this was happening and the reaction to it. I mean, it's New York. They don't know. Uh, I, I will say, I will say, I I had to refinance this this house that I'm currently in during the pandemic, and people and the lawyer on the other side of the deal was like, "Yeah, we need to find a way to meet with masks and yada yada to do this notarization." And I was like, "You don't." And she was like, "Well, you don't understand. No, that is the law in New York." And I was like, "I." I'm willing to say I understand this one thing way more than you do. <laughs> but yeah, but I still had to physically go and see her in like week two of the pandemic because no one believe no no one in New York actually follows rules. I, I interviewed uh, on my podcast last year um, Pat Kinsell, who's the CEO of Notar Notarize. Is that what's called Notarize? Uh, which is one of the big, a couple of the big sort of online notary platforms out there. 
but I thought it was uh, really interesting talking to him because he he talked about how no sooner did they kind of found this company uh, and he became CEO, then he realized he had to be a lobbyist and start going around state by state and getting the laws changed because so many states at that point did not allow online notarization. Uh, so, I mean, uh, it, it's interesting to think of a, a tech CEO going around state by state trying to uh, pave the way for their product to be able to operate that, in each state. That is weird because, like, what you're supposed to do is just stick a earphone in somebody going to court <laughs> and tell them to just start telling a judge their thing. Why change the rule first? I am very confused. The other thing that I thought was interesting different approaches. <laughs> Um, as a, a follow-up, I got an email from like a law firm manager in New York City somewhere who'd read my article and wanted recommendations for online notary companies. Um, and it, I just thought that was notable because it caught, you know, you write articles all the time. You don't always get emails about them. And so um, this person was already in the process of looking into this. And the, it just is sort of like another indication that this is sort of the trend and where we're kind of going with that. So. Well, I, and I'm of course, you referred them to the uh, Law Next Legal Tech directory, right? I did not. I reached out to our <laughs> partner person and asked them who they talked to. That's a great <laughs> point because she referred them to the above the law legal tech. I should have probably, right? I'll keep that in mind next time because I didn't have any off the top of my head that I'd worked with. So yeah. it was definitely disappointed in the right direction. Good to know. I wonder, I wonder why they had over 10 years as the, the, the having to keep the records though. Because like, look, I mean, if, if I'm a notary and I, and, I, and I, if I'm a notary and I fuck something up and like I get sued for it, like, isn't the statute of limitations usually like, like what, like four years, five years for that? So then why would, why would you need a 10 years? Like, who's going to sue you after 10 years? Like, like, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't quite get that, but I guess, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, if there's, if there's video files and like, and, and, and audio recorders and whatnot, that, that could, that, you know, that could take up a lot of space. So you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you should buy some stock in uh, um, some, some cloud, some cloud, uh, some cloud uh, services there, but yeah, I, I, but otherwise I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's cause yeah, like, like, like what Joe was saying, I mean, we, we 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 finance our house too at that point, but like I guess you know uh, the bank that we use, like they had a notary in house, so they just brought them, they just brought them with them to to, to our house to do that to do the documents, and that that made it easy. But yeah, I can see how it could be a real a real pain, especially you know yeah like if nobody can go anywhere. Well, it it was at a time where our state had already legalized doing it over Zoom, and this person was just like, I don't think that's the real law in New York, and I was like, huh, interesting. <laughs> Right, so Victor, are you saying people should possibly invest in, I don't know, law practice management software to store this type of data? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm not offering any any <laughs> endorsements or any, uh, but you know, if, if you were to throw throw a few, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, treats my way, then no. <laughs> <laughs> At tech show, I'll just throw money at all of you guys. <laughs> no, I won't. That was a joke. Right, so, uh... <laughs> No, but like all of us, so it's not. Uh, you heard it here first, right? You heard it here first. She does that every year at Tech Show. So. Nikki, Nikki, rolling in her my case stock. Uh, you know, she can. She can... <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, so, Joe. Yes. You've got uh, you've got a report on uh, working from home and data risks. Yes. So. Yeah, so uh, FTI actually put out a report uh, there, and it, and it has a lot of stuff in it, not just this one observation uh, about it, they they working with Brad Blickstein, who they do a um, a whole thing. Who I actually don't know, maybe even in the conversation, who knows? Nope, not. No, um, ah, oh, 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 yeah, okay, um, but yeah, they um, they talk to a bunch of executives uh, and C-suite folks at a bunch of companies about data risks, data privacy, cybersecurity, yada, yada. Uh, lots of interesting insights. But of course, it's a survey, right? So it's a perception issue. Uh, rather than reality, it's what those folks are saying. And one of, the, one of the observations, and it was a minor one within the report, but really struck me was a large number of them were saying, well, work from home and hybrid work, that has massively increased the number of risks that we face. And all I could think is bullshit. 
Like, there's no way that's true. Uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, a, there's, a, we all know there are a million and one ways, and there have been since Citrix. I, I was on Citrix as a first year associate. Like, there are a million and one ways in which you can sequester at home work into an environment where it's not really more at risk. Also, most people have been working, most companies have involved people working from home or on the road for decades at this point. Like there's no linearity to this link. It, like if you add more people who are working from home, it, it doesn't change the risk. You've already either planned for the opportunity of this risk of people working outside of your environment and have VPNs and a bunch of other protections, or you don't. The idea that adding a few more people, taking a, staying at home on Monday rather than just on Sunday, Saturday and Sunday, doesn't change that. And all I could think about it was this is because they understand correctly, I think, as a strategic move. They understand that the CEOs and a lot of the old guard bosses are ready to pull the plug on working from home despite any data that anyone has come up with. And they know that when and if, and maybe even if, uh, maybe more when than if, when the cyber attack comes and the breach comes, they can get out of responsibility for it by saying, oh, it's those pesky kids, those pesky kids working at home. And they know that some boss is going to believe that because the bosses are already clearly buying. Yeah, it, it, that uh, actually syncs a little bit with a, a story I did this week on this action step survey on sort of high levels of stress among employees at mid-sized law firms. Uh, of course, they cater to mid-sized law firms, so that's why Action Step did did that audience. But um, they they had reported that seventy-two percent of of workers, at, including legal professionals and administrative professionals at mid-sized law firms, are say they have experienced stress, burnout, and being overwhelmed in the past year, um, and that all of that stress leads to things like more errors and more things falling through the cracks and you know more mistakes, uh, and yet. Um, the survey found that the workers who were able to work from home at least a quarter of the time or more, it felt far less stress. And though therefore it follows, I guess, that they would be far less likely to make those kinds of errors or whatever that follow from that stress and burnout. So it would seem to be, uh, you know, again, uh, proof that uh, that it just it's it just bullshit that that working yeah. from home is is a bad thing. How did they define mid-size? Do you remember? Like it's kind of all over the board. It, it starts at from 10 and it goes up to over 100. It goes from small to big, Nikki. Come on. I like, no, I yeah. Uh, <laughs> silly question. Yeah, Sorry. everything between small and big. <laughs> but, but, but on the bullshit front, I was just going to say, in my article about it, one of the things I noted was Goldman Sachs' CEO is like, we suffer massive productivity losses by people not being in the office. And there's a major research report by Goldman Sachs that says that that's not true. <laughs> they aren't even listening to themselves. Anyway. <laughs> no, I, I read the, the same report and um, that was a good angle to work from home one. The thing that, that struck me about that FTI report, it's that the GCs are meeting with their executives at least... 39% of executives say they're meeting with GCs to discuss these data issues every month, and about 12% or so do it weekly with the GC. I mean, it just shows you the concern about data, um, but you're, you're right about calling out, you know. The and the rest are just ignoring their GCs? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to find an angle. All of all y'all had it, I, and they were, all y'all were going to talk about something in there. I had to find, like, where my niche was going to be, because there was a lot of great information in that, uh, if people haven't read it yet. All right, well, now to the uh, conference report segment of the show, uh, <laughs> uh, because we have a big one coming up. Uh, and, and Joe and I were at one uh, over this past week. We were at the Filevine Lex Summit Conference out in Salt Lake City. Um, but uh, uh, I know uh, Victor uh, wanted to give a little bit of a preview of, of ABA Tech Show. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if Steve wanted to weigh in on that a little bit as well. But uh, Victor, you want to talk about that? Yeah, um, I mean, I just did a, I did a fun podcast this week. Well, well, I got published this week. I did it last week. Um, 
with uh, Guy Sakalatis. I always mess up his name, Guy Sakalatis. Yeah, it's it's it, it, I, 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 like before I did the podcast, I was like, I was like, tell me again, how do you pronounce your name? He's like, yeah. he's like, he's like, he's like, don't worry, I, I get it a lot. So, um, but yeah, no, um, he's he's uh, co-chair of the uh, planning planning board this year, uh, and so we just talked about what you know, what are some changes that are coming to Texas and whatnot. I mean, the big thing is that there's um, you know, the sixteen sixty session, which is the usual closer on Saturday, is going to be Friday now. Um, so so Friday will be a long day for for people, but then you know, it'll kind of segue into some. Uh, some fun stuff like I think they have some dueling pianos and they have some like other things as well and then uh, so Saturday I think it's just going to be like uh, you know uh, people can show up if they want and 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 and, and you know uh, talk to people it's more of a social thing as opposed to having to come and learn and, and do something substantive um, but you know and also and also I think the big the other big change was they're having uh, two two keynotes this year as opposed to just one uh, there'll be one on Thursday one on Friday um, and but really just the whole thing was just you know this idea of and actually, uh, I'll mention I'll mention this one since, since Jane's on the well, Jane was on this thing. I don't know if she still is, uh, but um, she's doing. Um, she and some other people are doing like a mock, a mock, um, a mock hearing for the talking about like a, um, uh, you know, debating like a change in change in the ethics rule concerning um, you know alternative alternative uh, structures and whatnot. And that that should be interesting. I mean, like you know, typically the the, the keynotes are, tend to be just more just like someone talking at you and. You know, uh, just you know, making a speech and then maybe taking a few questions. This one has a little bit more, um, you know, of an interactive um, element to it, and um, you know, and, and whatnot, and, and and looking at an issue that that engenders passion on 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 you know multiple fronts. So it, it should be interesting. Um, I'm looking forward to, to to seeing it. And just you know, I mean, last year's conference was still a little bit hampered by um, you know there, there was a, there was a COVID spike. I think right around that time. Um, I, th- I think Omicron was maybe right before it. Um, and, and I think people were still a little bit reluctant to, to, to be out and about and whatnot. And so this year, I think it, it looks like they have a lot more people coming, um, as far as both attendees and vendors. Um, and so it'll be interesting just, just, just to kind of be out and about and about with, with everyone again, uh, hopefully everybody, you know, <laughs> hopefully everybody's feeling, feeling well and not, you know, um, uh, <laughs> uh too, too loosey goosey about that stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it'll just be nice to kind of just kind of, it, it does feel a little bit more like a, like a return, return to normal a little bit. And, and it'll, it'll just be nice just to be, to be, to be there. Always exciting to be in the Hyatt in Chicago or whatever. Like, it's not like we spend way too much time of our lives in that hotel. <laughs> My favorite hotel. It's just the last year though, isn't it? It's just the last year of the Hyatt or? That, that's that the wrong? rumor. That's the rumor. I don't know if I can talk about he, that. Steve, I told might, you. Steve might, uh, Steve might have some more I'd, info on that, but. Nobody's I, listening. I, I, I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I would reiterate what Victor said. I mean, there's a lot of buzz around the show and a lot of people signing up. A lot of vendors are going to be there. I'm, I'm very hopeful and I'm just going to be like we return to 2020 again. And uh, so it, it should be really cool. <laughs> the good parts of 2020, not the bad right. That's right. Well, it was, the, <laughs> it was the last show before 2020. It was the last show. 2020. Yeah, I think. Yep. Yeah, I remember I remember thinking that if, if, our, if, our, if the show had taken place like, like two weeks later, we would have been canceled. Oh, yeah. 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 Totally. Uh, good. Well, we're looking forward to it. And uh, I always have to put in a plug for and Startup Bob, Alley, you, opening you, night event of. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, Bob, Bob will be doing Startup Alley again as, well, as usual. So, yeah, that'll be, that'll be fun as well. Yep. And we'll if you're going we'll to Startup the- Alley, get, you're going to go to it, get there a few minutes early because it's usually standing room only. Yeah. Yeah. And get really drunk first and heckle everybody. <laughs> right. uh, except me. Don't heckle me. Um, can you drink during it and heckle you? Like, what's going on? You can drink during it. I think. Yeah, I don't know what the format yeah, is this year. Correctly, yeah. I don't have last, any last details year, on what the format bar. is this year. Yeah. Last year there was an open bar. Yeah. Last year, yeah, last year was a bar. I'm very excited. Sponsored by some law practice management company. I don't think it was my case, but um, was it clear? Might have been Cleo. Uh, it was Cleo. Uh, Let me be definitive about that. And, <laughs> but I, don't, I haven't heard. I don't know if that's happening again this year or not. But um, and then and then Joe, I don't know. Is there anything to say about Filevine? We were at the Filevine conference. They had lots of keynotes. I mean, like every other panel yeah. was a keynote. It seemed like uh, they kept there were a lot them of plenary, keynotes. I guess maybe maybe not keynote. There were a lot of plenary sessions. Plenary, we'll say, okay. Whether or not, true. yeah, whether or not they were technically keynotes. Yeah, no, I, it, very interesting stuff. Uh, I've never been there before. Uh, it you know, was one of their earlier, like they've only done four of these, I think. Uh, and obviously they were not doing them during the pandemic. Uh, so, and it seemed like this 
exceeded their expectations. I spoke with some folks who said that there were around 900 to 1,000 people there. That I heard some people some people suggested it was almost half. I don't think it was that, but like all, like a third of them signed up in the last two weeks because uh, they made a, an extra push and people were like, yeah, let's go. So uh, it was a really good show considering they had a rush of people they weren't expecting right at the end. Uh, and, you know, it's always nice to be out in a beautiful area of the world. Uh, it is, you know, we did, we had snow, but we didn't get snowed in at any point. Uh, I could imagine that could be a problem with that time and location going forward. But yeah, we heard some interesting stuff. You spoke, Bob, uh, you had one of the, you were part of one of the, the opening keynote. I was, yeah. And, and Dan O'Day was in the audience was there as well. Uh, I don't know if anybody else in the audience was there, but it, it was really interesting. I, I, I kept comparing it to, uh, I was recently at the Net Documents conference uh, back in, what was that, November or something in, in, in uh, Denver. Uh, and I mean, they're both user conferences uh, and they were both probably more or less similarly sized in terms of attendance. Uh, this might've been a little bit bigger than the Net Documents one, but I think they're interesting because the, the user conferences kind of have to walk this, this balancing act between providing sort of really sort of practical hands-on stuff about their product while also wanting to present programming on, you know, what's next in legal and, and what are the hot topics uh, facing a legal profession and all of that. Uh, and I thought they did a good job with that, just like I thought the Net Documents Conference did a good job with that. Uh, it, it was a, you know, I, I'm not highly familiar with the Filevine platform, but I, I learned some stuff about the Filevine platform, but I also just got, uh, got some good takeaways from some of the, you know, more general programming there. I mean, the biggest thing I kind of took away was like right at the very end when they were talking about like some of their last uh, upcoming advances. Because uh, I think of Filevine as doing a lot of, I mean, they're agnostic technically, but doing a lot of the like mass tort sorts of world. Like that's a lot of their market. Uh, and then they introduced an accounting plugin. It's not plugin, but an, an accounting function. Uh, it's more complex than a plugin. Uh, that was a cooperation with Oracle and putting aside my general hatred of Oracle, I feel like uh, it spoke to me that it might be more of a, they, they're they making a play at some more big law customers because I don't necessarily know as though a mass tort firm needs Oracle, uh, whereas big law firms kind of have that, that. They pivoted thing. a little while back. They, were, they started out, um, if I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure about this, 99%. They started out as basically like PI um, yeah. and mass torts. And then about a year yes. ago, they kind of, I think there was like a press release or announcement and they kind of pivoted and broadened their scope to um, generally be more law practice management in general, rather than focus on a specific practice area. And it may be the mid-market is what they're going after. The Oracle does seem to indicate that for sure. Yeah, because it was PI and mass, it was definitely correct. PI and mass, mass tort, uh, they have a, a there were there was a whole uh, breakout session, one of the few break. It wasn't few, but one of the non-plenary sessions. There was a breakout session with about immigration that was really interesting. Uh, so I know they're moving into some different areas, but like big law, I hadn't necessarily seen until I saw this whole Oracle Netsuite thing, and I was like, I, I believe I, I think it was Dan in the audience who said to me at one point, like something like, "Don't you need like." 20 million or so in in a, or some amount i can't remember uh to make that even worth it and i was like oh, yeah i guess yeah uh what's interesting i also heard i have not been able to confirm this yet but that one of their major competitors uh also uh um well no not one of their major competitors a, a major law firm a major personal injury law firm is actually already using Oracle NetSuite uh, in some ways, so that, uh, but but that's not on their platform. So uh, that was interesting. I mean, they also have they acquired Outlaw last year, which is a contract lifecycle management uh, platform. So uh, they're kind of going off in a bunch of different directions. But I mean, they've grown phenomenally. I mean, they they were I visited them in uh, 
um, in in Pro when they were based in Provo back in 2020, the week after ABA Tech Show in 2020, I was out in Provo and I visited them. And then, uh, uh, you know, they were kind of still kind of small and in a in a small smallish office there. And now they've moved uh, into much bigger space uh, in 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 uh, Salt Lake City and uh, have other offices and uh, you know raised what a couple hundred million dollars or something along the way. So, good company. Very interesting company. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we are out of time. Uh, Steve Lerner, thanks so much for sitting in with us today. Uh, and to uh, everybody else, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for participating. We will be back. I guess we'll be back next week. Uh, and uh, maybe we can all get together and do something at Tech Show or something. When, when are people going to Tech Show? Is that next week? Next Friday? No, that's following. No, it's not till the following week, right? So, yeah. We, we should be here next week. All right. Everybody have a good weekend. Happy long weekend, everyone. Yeah. Yay, presidents. Yeah. <laughs>